Hi. I'm conscious that yesterday we had a number of quite significant issues with our live stream. And with that in mind, I thought I would record an audio version of yesterday's sermon so that if you were interested in what was said throughout the rest of the service, you might want to be able to catch up with it. So let's pray and then I'll dive in. Father God, I give you thanks that you can connect with us in all sorts of different ways. And that's what you've been doing down through the generations. Help us to hear what you would say to us this morning or in this time together. Amen. Have you ever met someone for the first time and they really haven't turned out as you expected? Maybe it was someone you'd heard on the radio or perhaps it was someone with whom you've communicated by email or phone call. But you built up a mental picture only to discover that they are quite different. Back when I was the VP in the Student Union St Andrews, one of the jobs I had was to get the big companies to come to our Freshers' Fair and one client was Royal Bank of Scotland. My contact that was there was a lady, and I think she was called Janice, I can't really remember, although I hope she never sees, reads or hears this. Janice had the loveliest, softest East Coast Scottish accent. And I mean, when we talked over the phone a few times, I just melted. It was noticed by my colleagues that phone calls to RBS seemed to take so much longer than the others and that I'd be a dreamy, giggling wreck whenever I came off the phone. So it made my year when she asked if she could come over to the student union a few days before the fair just to get a feel for the layout of the hall. And there was great anticipation in our office. I'm sure I arrived smelling like I'd bathed in Lynx Africa or whatever scent was supposedly irresistible in the mid to late 90s. And you know, Janice was great, but she wasn't what I expected at all. She was probably not far old enough to be my mother for a start, which isn't that old really when you think about it, but it's certainly younger than I am now. But back then, oh, that was just ancient. But you know what? I don't think she was ever going to live up to my images of the beauty removing her glasses, shaking her hair loose and offering to take me away from all this. And even in this age of Zoom calls, being able to see someone whilst talking to them might be deceptive. The first two people I met at Stanmore in the flesh, rather than over the internet, one of them said I was bigger than expected and the other said that I was smaller. And I used those words in the flesh quite deliberately. Because okay, my example was light and flippant, but I sometimes wonder if we have the same problem with God. When he comes to us, he's just not what we expected. Actually, the opening of the Gospel of John says that's precisely what happened when we encountered God in the flesh. John says he, that's Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And as we've touched on over the last few weeks, down through the centuries, the millennia, God has been reaching out to us, seeking to reveal something of himself to us through his prophets at many times in various ways. People had carried a hope and had built up a mental image of what this God was like. You know, maybe expectations should have been more managed. 
I mean, Isaiah said of him, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. But when God came to us, although he'd been longed for and dreamt of, did we fail to recognise him? Because he just, just wasn't what we expected. Over the last few weeks, I've been thinking of a more Christ-like God. My basic premise is that God has been seeking to reveal himself to us, to establish relationship to us. But his decisive revelation was in sending his son Jesus. Jesus alone is the image of the invisible God. Jesus alone is the exact representation of God. If we want to know what God is like, we need to look at Jesus. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. God always will be like Jesus. Of course, it doesn't always seem quite so straightforward, does it? We can find it hard to see the way God is sometimes portrayed, even within the pages of the Bible, and relate that to Jesus. And I'm not just talking about the Old Testament either. The way, for example, Revelation is often read and interpreted even presents Jesus in ways which are virtually unrecognisable from the Jesus of Nazareth we encounter in the Gospels. Listen to how one big-name conservative American pastor describes the Revelation Jesus. He says, In Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand and a commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Now there are a few problems with that. Aside from his bizarre, disturbing criteria of who he'll worship. One is that it assumes that there are only two types of God, the ones he describes, and that they're the only options available. But it's also, and more importantly, I see no resemblance between that Jesus and the one who was, in fact, beaten up, and whose commitment wasn't to make someone else bleed, but who was committed to bleed because he loved us to the extent that he bled for us. But I'm very conscious in this series that I have to be careful. Honestly exploring faith means we don't just get to gloss over or ignore the bits we don't like. We have to engage with them and we will over the next few weeks. But just as the real RBS Janice wasn't the image I had in my head but the person I encountered in the flesh when she came to my office, so as God reached out to us down through the generations it was possible for us to build up that mental picture. But the reality was the one who came to us in the flesh, in Jesus. There's a story in the Gospels how when Jesus' ministry went public and he started to attract attention, there was panic in Herod's palace. They thought Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Herod didn't know the half of it. Jesus wasn't a reincarnation. It was much worse than that. He was the incarnation. 
not of another person, but of God himself. Incarnation isn't, as the name might suggest, a magazine for the British motorist. Think about that for a second. It's the word we use to describe God taking on flesh, becoming one of us. Jesus comes from God to reveal God in a way we could see, hear, touch. As Bradley Jersak puts it in the God, you know, the God of the universe who dwells in inapproachable light. But if you had a smartphone, you could have posed for a selfie with him. And often when people with a bit of Christian background, maybe a little bit of religious knowledge, hear that word incarnation, they'll think of a stable, a manger and the little baby Jesus. And that is part of it. But it is really more than just the Christmas or the birth story. It covers Jesus' entire flesh and blood life. From how he arrived through how he lived to how he died, how he overcame. But of course, just as it's possible to create whatever image of God we want, I've read enough books about Jesus to know that his story can be twisted and moulded into many different shapes, creating very different Jesuses according to the writer's tastes. And some of them are more convincing than others. But are there non-negotiables? Are there threads which run right through the story from which we can't escape? I would suggest there are. And the main one can be found in the reading we shared together today. From Philippians chapter 2. The second half of our reading from verse 6 contains what many believe to be one of the earliest extant bits of Christian writing. It's an early Christian hymn and it describes how God revealed himself or what we discovered when God came to us in the flesh. And one word runs through the whole story. That word is humility. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself as nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you were God, how would you have come amongst us? And how did Jesus do it? That phrase, made himself as nothing, can also be translated, emptied himself. It's the Greek word, kenosis. Jesus sets aside any trapping of divinity to stoop down and come amongst us. He comes secretly, quietly. Not to positions of power, but to dwell amongst an oppressed, colonised people on the outposts of empire. There's a lovely Iona prayer or meditation which I sometimes use at Christmas, which starts, When the world was dark and the city was quiet, you came, you crept in beside us. I love that. There's no military parade, no fanfare, just a trudging journey, a no vacancy sign, a cave of smelly animals and a major. The almighty power behind the words, and God said, lowers himself to wailing for milk 
or because he's filled in that bay. The great I am, the one who gave the law to Moses at Sinai, submits himself to the parental ruling of an uneducated Nazarene teenager and her equally bemused fiancé husband. Wise men go looking for him in the palace only to be told, now mate, you've got to go to the backwater down the road. And he needs his parents' protection as he's whisked away to Egypt to spare him from a paranoid puppet king. You can read that story and think, surely God, surely you could have planned it all a bit better. But the problem was, it was no accident. He came that way on purpose. By coming this way, he was revealing God. This was the exact representation of God. And if you have reason to doubt whether it was deliberate, consider this. It was no one-off. The story continues in much the same vein. He doesn't come with false humility. Jesus knows precisely what he's about. He's no doormat. He's not frightened to say no, whether that's to a whole town full of people demanding that he heal their sick, or in a family feud over an inheritance. But look at the rest of his story. He doesn't pick the cream of the crop as his followers. He picks normal people with a range of skills. They're slow on the uptake. They let him down again and again. But at least they're teachable. He's not afraid to sit down to dinner with anyone. So he will eat with Simon the Pharisee, but be equally at home with those the respectable try to ignore. At every turn, he refuses to submit to any attempt to give him power, as those around him would have recognised it. Oh yeah, yeah, there's one occasion when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's often called a triumphal entry, but it, it was partly an ironic mockery of a parade taking place on the other side of town as Pilate arrived with full military procession and insignias on a stallion and partly the fulfilment of a prophecy of a king who comes humbly, riding on a donkey. So whilst his followers argue about who is the greatest, he strips off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, gets down on the floor and starts washing his disciples' feet. Or on the next day, he allows himself to be given over into the hands of those who would abuse him, beat him, flog him, spit on him, crown him with thorns and mock him, and then execute him in the most brutal, humiliating way possible. In a way that seemed to utterly deny his true identity. By crucifixion. And as they do so, Despite feeling utterly abandoned, he cries, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Is it any wonder that when the church scarred their scriptures for words which could adequately describe what happened, they settled on one which declared, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord be revealed? If we were writing it today, you might say, they couldn't make it up. Or if you did, no one would believe it. When you put it in perspective, it seems as offensive and foolish now as Paul told the Corinthians it was back then. 
Around my neck I wear a cross. And I try, if you try to imagine what that means. Imagine someone wearing a noose or an electric chair at the end of a necklace in a few hundred years time. And yet if you look closely at the cross I wear around my neck and you look from the bottom up you will see it's shaped like a heart because the cross a symbol which should have stood for the utter brutality of humanity a symbol of the power of those who thought they ruled the world and controlled our destiny instead it's become a symbol most recognized in the world but symbolizing love central to describing who God is, the portrayal par excellence of God's very being. It's Jesus' own masterpiece, his ultimate revelation of how God so loved the world. You see, God wins not by driving us into submission, but by graciously, mercifully not counting our sins against us but powerfully, victoriously conquering Satan, sin and death by letting them do their worst and then overcoming in resurrection. And it's because of that that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God has revealed himself fully and decisively in the one they pierced on a cross. And in that man on the cross, we have the perfect human image of the invisible God. A God who is like Jesus, has always been like Jesus, and always will be like Jesus. Down through the years, God has been reaching out to us. And a picture had been forming in our minds. But when he came to us in the flesh, it was nothing like we'd been expecting. And today too, it is little different. What kind of God are we looking for? And is he Christ-like? Is he still on the side of those whom others would overlook? Does he come to those we least expect? Is he still at work amongst ordinary people, not necessarily those whom everyone would look up to, but ordinary people among doing ordinary things made special by the Spirit at work in them? Does he still do his best work among the persecuted, bringing strength out of apparent weakness, victory out of apparent despair? And do we still struggle to believe it because it comes in ways we least expect? For whatever else we might think of Jesus, that coming amongst us humbly, emptying self, kenosis, is a non-negotiable part of what our Christ-like God is like. So may we learn to look for him and spot him at work, even when we least expect, because we've come to realise that's just how Jesus would do it. That's just what we would expect from a Christ-like God. Grace and peace be with you.